Good morning. As most of you will know, I am not the Reverend Dr. Glendon Thompson. My name is Nick, and I'm the Associate Minister here at Knox. And Dr. Thompson, who was scheduled to be our guest preacher today, emailed us yesterday afternoon to let us know that somebody in his family had tested positive for COVID. And while he was still testing negative, he thought better than to come and join us this morning. So hopefully, Dr. Thompson will be able to join us some future week. And in the interim, I invite you to join us in praying for him and his family, for Jarvis Street Baptist Church as they support him through this season as well. But what that also means is that I get to dig into this parable with you this morning, though on short notice. So the sermon might be shorter than usual, which I don't expect to hear any complaints about. And some of my thoughts might overlap with some of the thoughts that I shared in our Mark Challenge question and answer video from earlier this weekend. For those of you who've been following along with us, reading the whole Gospel of Mark in this season, and I hope that you can forgive that as well. Last week, we watched as Jesus entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem with the blind man, Bartimaeus, being the most recent person to confess him as the Messiah. And we realize that what even the blind can see is still hidden from the teachers of the law. And the way that those prayers of Hosanna, save us, would be answered, the very gospel of our Lord, was still far from the minds of the people. But Jesus has made it clear that this city of Jerusalem, it will be saved, though not in the ways that people anticipate. And the worship of God will be made right, though not through the means of the temple, which is empty of God's presence and whose leaders push people away from the true worship of God. So this morning, we turn to Mark 12 and this parable of the wicked tenants which is a parable that Jesus tells within Jerusalem, within the temple. And his primary audience is not the crowd, is not his disciples, but is the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the religious authorities. These are the people to whom Jesus speaks. And Jesus tells a story that would have been somewhat familiar to them. There are documented accounts of things just like what Jesus described actually happening in this region of the world in the hundreds of years preceding Jesus' ministry. It's a story that people have heard before. Not only is the story somewhat familiar, the details which Jesus provides, in, in the first verse especially, would have been very familiar as these actions were the actions of God toward Israel, which were recorded by the prophet Isaiah in the Song of the Vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 says, and you can see on the slide here the comparison between the opening of this parable and Isaiah 5. Isaiah writes, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. There are so many parallel actions that we see, substantial overlap between the song of the vineyard of God's action for Israel and this parable that Jesus tells. Immediately, our minds and the minds of the teachers of the law are meant to be drawn back to these verses, and this provides for us the key for interpreting the whole parable. It's made plain. The vineyard owner is God. 
the vineyard is Israel or perhaps even the world. And the tenants are those who have been given the responsibility of caring for it. This parable seems different than Jesus' other parables. You may remember way back in Mark 4, when we read about the parable of the sower, how Jesus says he speaks in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Jesus says that he tells parables in order that people wouldn't understand. This is probably to make sure he's not executed before his time. And probably also so that people who are open to the world that Jesus talks about can receive the good news that he has for them. But in this parable, Jesus doesn't seem to have gone to any particular lengths to hide its meaning from those he speaks to. In fact, Mark says in verse 12 that they knew he had spoken this parable against them. As the time for Jesus' suffering and death grows nearer, he speaks in a parable that will be understood. They knew what it was about. They knew it was against them. And they did not like it one bit. It seems that what we've earlier said about parables is true. They are best understood from the inside, from within them, even as stained glass windows in a church are best seen from inside the church. And the teachers of the law and the elders, they're within this parable. They see themselves here. They understand it because it's their lives that Jesus is pointing to. This is almost like when the prophet Nathan tells a parable to David to confront him with his own sin and then announces, you are that man. Jesus is saying to those who listen to him in the temple this day, you are these tenants. You are that man. There is an owner of this vineyard who loves it, who created it, who desires to see its flourishing, and he entrusted it to the care of others, sharing its beauty and its produce in hopes that others might come to love it even as he did. They do love it, but their love is a selfish love and they will not pay the rent, will not share the fruit or the wine. They want to forget the owner exists. They desire not only the fruit of the vineyard, but to have the whole vineyard for themselves. In the same way, the chief priests and the elders have turned the messengers of this vineyard's owner away. As God sent messengers and prophets into the world, it was Jerusalem and the religious leaders who turned them away, who persecuted them, who killed them. The people in power, they always like the world just how it is. It suits them. It's what brought them to power. And when God, the creator and Lord of all, sends people to call the tenants back into right relationship with God and back into right relationship with the things that God has given them to care for, well, they have no patience for it. They do not desire the good of the world. They only desire their own good. This is still true today. We cannot kid ourselves that it's only these powerful people, these specific religious leaders who behaved in such ways. Still today, there are those to whom much has been given who do not know that much is required of them. 
Rather, they desire that much more. Billionaires compound their wealth and dole out figures which, in comparison, are miserly to charity. Church leaders are caught up in scandal with recent headlines in our city of Toronto, as well as a recent documentary seeking to expose one of the largest megachurches in the world. The danger of religious leaders continues as well. The tenants, Jesus says, desire to do as they please. They will not be rebuked. They will not receive the messengers of the owner. They will not care for the vineyard for the benefit of all. They desire it for themselves and only on their terms. This parable is certainly addressed to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders 2,000 years ago. But in it, we also see a warning to those of us who serve in ministry today. As ministers, as pastors, as elders and missionaries, deacons, home church leaders, serving coffee after church even. We are tenants in a vineyard not our own. We are stewards of wealth that is not ours to keep. But more than this, we recognize that the whole church is a people who are called to follow Jesus. And we believe that following Jesus means something. It means things like loving your neighbors and loving this city. It means things like serving the least and the lost. We say serving the world. So all of us who are following Jesus have been called to ministry. All of us are called to service. All of us have been given a lease in God's vineyard and a good work to do and good fruit to share in. The sin of the tenants in this parable, the sin which the teachers of the law are certainly guilty of, it is the foundational sin of all people. It is the original sin of humanity, and it is the sin which is at the root of all of our other sins, the sin which pervades all of our hearts. In another garden which God planted, when the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east in Eden, God commanded the man, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But the serpent tempted them, saying, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Of course they ate. They ate because they did not believe God, but they also ate because they desired to gain wisdom. They desired to be like God. For people, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We were created to be in relationship with God, and it is from God that all wisdom comes, not from ourselves. They wanted to be like God, to take for themselves what, that which might make them like God. And this is the pattern that the tenants fall into, the pattern that the religious leaders fall into, and the pattern that we all so often conform our lives after. Rather than being satisfied with the fruit of the garden, the first people, Adam and Eve, desired to have the one thing which was not for them, They desired to be Lord over all creation, to become gods. 
And rather than be satisfied in the splendor of the vineyard and with their share of the crop, the tenants desired that the inheritance should be theirs. And rather than listen to the messengers of God and draw people to God, the religious leaders sought to secure their own power. And rather than be what God has called each of us to be, we have all sought to become Lord of our own lives, heirs of inheritance which we plan to take for ourselves. We all claim ownership of our time, which is not ours, but a gift from God. We all claim lordship over our finances, which are not ours, but our God's. We claim divine right over every kind of comfort and indulgence that we can choose for ourselves. And in each of these actions, we reject the messengers of the owner. We ignore the truth of our relationships with God, our relationship to the Lord and creator of all things. And we seek to usurp God in our own lives and in the world. In all this, we join the sin of those people to whom Jesus speaks this parable against. This sin, as the parable warns the religious, leader of, religious leaders of Jesus' day, this sin leads to death. This is what God first told humanity in the garden. If you eat this fruit, you will surely die. Not because that's what God wants, not because God is spiteful and petty and vengeful. But you will die because you claimed a place for yourself in the cosmos which is not yours to hold. A place which you cannot hold in your own strength. You will have cut yourself off from the one who is the source of all life. The God who created you from the dust of the earth. These tenants... They're rejecting the way of life which has been given to them, and they're trying to scheme to achieve something greater than they can handle. They say, let's kill the heir, and the inheritance will be ours. As he reflects on this parable and the goal of the tenants to achieve the inheritance for themselves, St. Augustine asks this simple question, how? How will that be the case? How will the inheritance become theirs? Merely because they killed the heir? The owner yet lives and can name a new heir. And it's far more than this that will happen. Jesus says that in fact the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. The heir which was slaughtered by these wicked tenants will still be the heir. Not rejected not dumped in the heap of useless stones or abandoned to the grave, but picked back out and given a special place and special honor, given new life and raised from the dead. We cannot become like God by eating a fruit which is not for us. We cannot usurp God's rule by ignoring the prophets. We cannot take control of the vineyard by killing the heir. We cannot keep our lives by clinging to our control of them. We cannot do this. So what is our hope? There is a way to become like God. 
There is a way to gain the inheritance of the vineyard and to find life even from the graves that we all now know, as well as the grave that we will all one day know. There is a way, and that way is the way of Christ. God desires that we would be as he is, and the only way to make that possible was that Jesus came to be as we are. In Jesus, we see the way to the Father. In Jesus, we see the fullness of human life. And in him, we are given the opportunity to become co-heirs of the kingdom, not by seizing it for ourselves. That has never worked. It didn't work in the garden. It didn't work for these tenants, and it will not work for us. But the way is by simply and humbly learning the ways of the kingdom and being graciously welcomed in, that Jesus would freely share what is rightfully his, and our loving Father would run to meet us and to welcome us home. These tenants are wicked because they strike messengers and deal shamefully with another's servants. They are wicked because they murder and scheme, but all of this wickedness comes from their single core desire that the vineyard should be theirs. All of this evil came from a lie which they believed about themselves and a lie that they believed about the natural order of the world, that it should be different, that they should be on top. We too are wicked when we believe lies that tell us that what we know and what we see around us, that these things should be ours, that God's demands on our lives are too great, and that the Lord deals with creation in an inferior way to the way that we would handle things if only we were in charge. And in these lies come all kinds of sin which lead us far from God and far from life. Yet in Christ, we see that even that which is rejected can be restored. Even that which is dead can be raised to life. And so we are invited again today to turn from our wickedness, to reject all the lies which make us displeased and dissatisfied, and to hide ourselves in Christ, who is the chief cornerstone of God's coming kingdom and in whom we find our head that we might discover in living as he lived, we may become as he is and receive the inheritance of the Father, the kingdom which he is pleased to give us, should we only stop trying to take it for ourselves. Friends, in Jesus Christ, the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Let us receive his good news. Let us become as he is. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of reflection questions for you to meditate on, to journal about it if you're at home, to talk with quietly in the sanctuary with those near you perhaps, or as loudly as you want if you're joining us online, and certainly to pray about as well. The first is, think of how it is that you might be trying to become an owner rather than a tenant how you might be trying to become God rather than a person and confess this to God. And then secondly, ask Jesus to invite you into his way of receiving the kingdom and pray that the church 
would be a true reflection of Christ to the world. We'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect and pray on these things.